Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week, chatting to the prolific thriller author, Lisa Gardner. Uh, normally a series writer, she's just published her first standalone in 20 years. It's called Before She Disappeared. We talk about why she likes to get things done in the morning. Uh, also, why she hates having to think about the actual words that are actually on the page. And you can hear about how, as a pantser, sometimes you live life cutting it quite fine. I'm a pantser, I'm not a plotter, so I don't know who did it. And as you get closer and closer to deadline and you still don't know who did it, it creates kind of a sense of, you know, inner terror. So at that point, the book will almost become a bit obsessive in my brain. I might sit on the couch and the TV might be on, but my family will tell you I am not present at all. <laughs> there is more with Lisa Gardner in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes. Hello. Uh, welcome to the show. It's Writer's Routine, where we trawl through an author's day to see how they get things done. Uh, my name is Dan Simpson. Thank you for listening and coming back and telling everyone and downloading and streaming. And, and most importantly, they've changed things. So most importantly, uh, by making sure that you are following this wherever you get your shows. Now, this week, we're chatting to Lisa Gardner. She's published 11 D.D. Warren novels, two Tessa Leone novels, and she's back with her first standalone in 20 years. It's called Before She Disappeared. And here's the blurb. Oh, I loved it. It's like my voiceover audition. Um, recovering alcoholic Frankie Elkin spends her life doing what no one else will, searching for missing people the world has stopped looking for. A new case brings her to Matapan, a Boston neighborhood with a rough reputation. She is searching for Angelique Badeau, a Haitian teenager who vanished from her high school months earlier, and Frankie will stop at nothing to discover the truth, even if it means the next person to go missing could be her. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a real romp, this one, a proper thrill ride. We talk about how she finds the difference between being a plotter and a pantser. Also, how the characters are figuring themselves out all the time and how that really drives the story, but how it can also switch up. And the fact it happens in different ways between her books, it keeps her on her toes. 
We talk about how, for her, being mildly prolific kind of means you need to get up early. Uh, It's a good one. It's a shorter but very sweet chat this week. So I hope you enjoy. We get into it, as we always do, with what Lisa Gardner sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Well, I'm a mountain girl. So when I sit at my desk, the first thing I love is the mountain view I have living in the mountains of New Hampshire. Um, It's a little distracting, but it's also very inspiring. And then on my desk, I have little tokens from my career. I have a, a glass cat that is a gift from my French translator. I have this little Um, gnome guy I picked up when I was at a book convention in Norway. Um, Just little reminders of of the fun parts of the writing process for the days when the writing itself is not so fun. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what you find on the desk around. If if you were to look around, um, what is adorning your walls? Is there much inspiration for the fun times there? Well, I like most novelists, um, I'm certainly behind me along the walls. I'm surrounded by books. I have some of my favorite books from the authors I love. I have a collection of vintage Earl Stanley Gardner books that my grandmother gifted me with. This, he is the family favorite author. I do have on my wall uh, the movie poster from the TNT production of Hyde. And I have in my office, um, from going to the set of that movie, they gave me um, like a director's chair with my name on it, which is also, that was a fun time. Are there any clues to what you're writing there, Lisa? If I were to walk into your writing room, would I have any clue as to what you're working on at that time? No, because I'm a terrible neat freak. So I do have files and I have pages of notes, but a lot of it I do like anyone else. I'm working off my computer. So as I do interviews, I type them up. And often when I'm working on the book, it's I have other files open on my computer. But I will admit I need a clean work surface and an uncluttered space. Um, otherwise, I procrastinate by cleaning instead of writing instead. The, the files, whilst presumably getting incredibly tedious for you. Uh, What's the system for filing them? (laughs) Is it just um, everything in one book goes in one file and then you move on? Yes, but then I can copy them. Because sometimes, like right now, I'm starting a book where I need to use search dogs. And I've actually researched that a couple times. So I just went back into the books where I had that and I copied those interviews and move them into my current file. Why I do it that way, I don't know, but it's like I didn't want to disturb I don't, uh, the, the gravesite of the old book. I'm not sure what, <laughs> but it felt wrong to take things away from that book. <laughs> so I just made a copy for the new project. <laughs> Is there a, a, a form of your story that exists, I guess, as a timeline somewhere before you 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 start it or midway through have you got a spreadsheet with chapter by chapter notes i see i don't plot i am a pantser as we call it so for me the process very much starts with researching generally with experts law enforcement you know i have a crime um in the case of before she disappeared i have a missing person's cold case um okay, when this 15-year-old Haitian girl originally went missing, what were the logical steps the police did? Then to me, you have to account for why that didn't work. Um, In that case, it created quite a puzzle because in a major urban environment with cameras and witnesses everywhere, no one should be able to disappear. And I kind of learned my book by going then. Well, okay, I know all the things that did happen and I have to account for why none of them were the right leads or help move forward. So that basically brings you to the next problem or plot twist as the case may be. And 
but it unfolds more organically in my mind. I don't have any outline. I used to have note cards, but I've kind of gone away from that. Again, if you walked into my office, it would look very much like a library, and you would have no clue that someone was in the midst of some artistic madness at all. On the desk, you've got the uh, the laptop or computer that you write on. Um, what, what are you writing on? What software? And also, when things get properly niche and nerdy, um, what typeface are you using? Do you have any? I know. I know. Well, you laugh at that, Lisa. But I spoke to an author that recently who changed the, the typeface when he was finding it a bit hard. When he was stuck, he would switch over the font and that would help him out. Have you got any kind of strong font opinions? You know, it's funny because authors can talk about this stuff all day long. I, I mean, I am old school. I mean, I published before or I was writing even before we had computers, I'm embarrassed to say. So from the very beginning, it's been Microsoft Word and I'm institutionalized at this point. I think it's Times Roman 12 point font. And I very funnily had a book where I just, I couldn't make my daily page count and it was killing me. It felt like I was writing so hard, so hard, so hard. And I was never making page count. And I finally figured out my file for whatever reason had gotten changed to 11 point font, not 12 point. And the minute I switched it back to 12 point, I had made my page count for days. <laughs> it was the font that was, and I was so happy and I was so vindicated. And then I'm like, oh my God, I'm totally institutionalized. I can do five pages in 12 point font every morning like clockwork. <laughs> <laughs> so the, I always joke because these things are the, the best case scenario and not often the madness that really happens. But in an ideal world, if I could control all variables, I like to write first thing in the morning and often very early in the morning. Um, I almost feel like writing is done best before you're fully awake and you know any better. You know, just get up and it's, I don't know, it's kind of like laying down pages. And uh, then I'll take a break, um, maybe have some breakfast, uh, might go to work. Um, very quickly. So, sorry, Lisa, let me jump in. What what time is very early in the morning for um, you? Often 5 a.m. In the summer, it doesn't feel so bad. In the winter, when it's dark, it's it's different. Um, lately, it's been 7 a.m. because I have an elderly dog who doesn't sleep anymore at night. But <laughs> but just first thing, for me, I'm the morning person. I, you know, people talk about biorhythms. When are you most creative? And you got the night owl and you have the morning person. There seems to be very few people that are afternoon people, but I'm definitely the best creativity for me will be first thing in the day. Can I ask you how you discovered that? Have you always known or, or had you kind of published a few and then you realize, oh, I know when I do work best? Actually, it really was the writer's journey. I mean, when I first started out, writing, I mean, this wasn't something, you know, this was something you did on the side. I mean, like I was in college, I had, then I had a real job, you know, I wasn't being paid to be a writer. So I had to write when I could. And sometimes that was late at night. Sometimes that was the first thing. I once had a semester of college where the only writing time I had was from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. And that book was terrible. I cannot do function at all between 3 and 5 p.m. is what I learned. And so this kind of thing, back in the days when you're writing, when like any aspirational writer, you're just cramming it in when you can, you start to notice the patterns of, you know, this time of day, I seem to be, I get things done. This time of day, it just feels like I'm slogging a boulder uphill. And that helps you make the determination. And you're an immensely prolific author. So you have clearly had to make the most of that morning creativity. So you start work ideally at about five. 
Um, I know I interrupted you, so so please go on. Uh, how do you pick things up after your breakfast? Well, yeah, so this actually ties into you being uh, the prolific part. If you're a professional author and you're under deadline, and it can't just be you're writing on the days you feel like it, because there are a lot of days I don't think anyone feels like doing this. <laughs> we just do it anyway. You have to figure out what are the things that keep you inspired and keep you motivated. And for me, really, that is um, activity. Um, in particular, I'm a hiker living up in the mountains, but going outside and hiking, going outside working in, in the garden, but some kind of outside activity, that's when I think about the book. So it's like I get some pages down, then I go off and I do something, you know, something where my brain can wander as much as I want and I won't hurt myself or others. And generally during that time, I start to realize, one, sadly, what's wrong with the pages I already wrote, but what would be better? And hey, here's a great idea for a plot twist to happen next. Or wait, I think this is what's really going on. And then that energy takes me back inside. And, you know, late morning, early afternoon, I'll work again. I start it by revising what I did in the morning, which just seems like an easier way to get into it. But then generally, you know, kind of more complete the scene. And then later in the day, I am a published novelist. I publish in 30 countries. And when I have a book coming out like now, there's a lot of other demands in my time. So a lot of email, social media, contracts, the business side of stuff is transactional is kind of what I say for later in the day. When you're doing that, when you've finished your like properly writing time and you're doing the transactional stuff, and then later on when you're enjoying yourself in the evening, how good are you at almost switching off the story? putting it in one side of your brain so you can kind of crack on? You know, it's funny. If I'm stuck, I can't switch it off at all, um, particularly as I get closer to deadline because I, I'm one of those authors. Again, I'm a pantser. I'm not a plotter. So I don't know who did it. And as you get closer and closer to deadline and you still don't know who did it, it creates kind of a sense of, you know, inner terror. So at that point, the book will almost become a bit obsessive in my brain. I might sit on the couch and the TV might be on, but my family will tell you I am not present at all. <laughs> my brain is, and I've been known to pace the house and mumble and talk to, I like to say I'm talking to the dogs. The family would argue I'm talking to myself. <laughs> if you're a morning person then, and you're a morning pantsing person, uh, what do you know about that day's work 5 a.m. You've just woken up. You've sat down in front of your uh, in front of Microsoft work, uh, Microsoft Word. Sorry. What do you know about what you're hoping to get done that day? So my writing style as a suspense novelist is to end each chapter on a bit of like a mini cliffhanger, and pick up the next chapter, you know, with a hook. That kind of helps me with my own thought process. If I've ended the day with a little cliffhanger then it's something I can think about during my activity time. And then often right before going to bed. I mean, that's the question you kind of want to put back in your mind. And it's interesting to me how many times in the morning I wake up and I have that idea like, oh, I know how to open the next chapter. And as long as I can see, you know, 10 to 20 pages ahead, it seems like I can just kind of keep walking along, um, I don't know. It's a crazy system when I try to say it out loud, <laughs> but it, it seems to work. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We'll have more with Lisa in just a sec. Uh, it's been busy over on Patreon this week. Uh, we've been talking about the benefits of lockdown because loads of authors have chatted to us recently, well, over the last year, uh, saying how these 12 months, how it has stifled creativity, how it's sapped energy for work. A lot of fairly reasonable things like that. But I spoke to an author the other day who, uh, she told me how, in a way, lockdown has really helped her. It's helped her understand how she works best. It's given her the space and the break to kind of figure things out, to to help her understand what she needs to do going forward, that she needs buzz, she needs busyness and energy around her so she can storytell. So it got me thinking if there were any little lockdown silver linings that you found that might change the way that you work going on. Uh, So we've had a chat about that over on Patreon. You can get involved at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine, turning it into a little, uh, I guess, writing social media hub of advice something like that that's what we're doing over on patreon next week the chat will all be about fonts so there's something to get yourself pledging for uh, it's patreon.com forward slash writers routine you can get bonus episodes while you're there as well you can get little bits of merch and there is also a way for your book to sponsor this show serious you can have a whole episode dedicated to plugging and loving your work uh, just support the show any way you can it's patreon.com forward slash writers routine Let's get back to it then with Lisa Gardner uh, talking about her new book, Before She Disappeared. It's her first standalone in 20 years. Now, in this half, we chat about the research, 
how she goes about actually looking into police procedure and practice. Also, you can hear about how you sometimes have to accept that writing is just like drawing blood from a stone. And we pick things up again, talking about the whole year, 12 months in the life of Lisa Gardner writing a book. Uh, How does it look? For me, the writing process is kind of three months of research, six months to do Anne Lamott's shitty first draft. And the fact that I think of it that way makes it much easier to do. I'm not expecting perfection. And then I really am a rewriter. You know, some authors work hard to get it right the first time. 30 years later, I still just don't seem to be capable of that. And it's very frustrating, let me tell you. But I've accepted that part of my process now is the rewriting. And I work with a great editor and I work hard on the revision stage. It can be ripping apart, rebuilding, um, and that's okay. Anything to get the book right so that, you know, the finished product is what you want it to be. No one has to know the mess you made along the way, right? (laughs) So now part of... The by the time I'm hitting, you know, so before she disappeared is coming out now. So now I'm in a publicity marketing phase that for a good month, that's the only thing that really built into my 12 month little equation. It's hard to work on the new project just yet because I'm doing so much talking about the old project. On the other hand, Frankie Elkin gets to appear in the new book too. So the more time I spend talking about her, you know, with you, with others, it helps solidify my thoughts for the next book as well. So before, I guess those solidifying the thoughts, is it a case of having a like a mental bank of story ideas? Because if you are having to publish a book a year, and especially the type of suspense crime thrillers that you're writing, you need to kind of be ready to go to make sure you get it done in 12 months. Uh, how much are you constantly being observant? and being open to new ideas? So for me, most of my novels have been inspired by um, true crime or a real world thing. Uh, Before She Disappeared, the book that's out now is based on a real woman who became frustrated by the number of women going missing on tribal lands and decided to do something about it. That became the inspiration for Frankie Elkin, an ordinary person who's now obsessed with trying to find the, the missing people the world forgot kind of people that aren't going to make national news, that aren't going to get, you know, huge amounts of attention or resources. And so for me, you know, often when I'm procrastinating, surfing the internet, I'm reading true crime, I'm watching true crime on TV, I'm, you know, reading books or listening to podcasts. And pretty much at any given time, for better or for worse, there's enough madness going on in the real world, I will never run out of book ideas. <laughs> I know you're a fairly meticulous planner, um, but as a pantser, what do you need to know before you start the very first sentence of the book? So when you've given yourself that time, when you're doing what you're doing now, talking about the new one that's coming out, before you start writing the next one, how much do you need to know before you're comfortable to to crack on with that first sentence? So I need two things. From a kind of research perspective, I need to understand my location well enough. I need to understand the crime and the logistics of that well enough. And I need to understand basic investigative procedure because that's going to guide, you know, the logical actions my characters are going to take for at least the beginning of the novel before we decide that none of these things worked and now we're really stuck. The probably the second thing, but maybe in some ways the more important thing to me is, and this is where you sound like the crazy author, I need to hear my character. 
And interesting enough for me, that's the part that's organic. When I'm out hiking the mountains or wandering the, my own home, someone like Frankie Elkin just comes to me. Like I knew her the minute I heard her. And once I can get that voice just loud enough and dialed in to my head and I can just hear her, then I'm off and running. What's coming first in that situation, Lisa? Is it, is it the plot or is it somewhere the character is already there? This might be a bit airy-fairy, but I, I guess would the character exist without the plot? You know, it's both. Uh, but you ask you a good question. I've had books where the character came for me first. So for Hyde, I just had this woman who kept talking about the world as a system. You don't have to understand the system. You don't have to like the system. But you have to know the system in order to survive. And from there, I almost built the plot because I just kept hearing that refrain so often it was driving me crazy. And then I kind of read about something about this girl who grew up on the run from the time she was a young child, but her, never, her parents never told her from what. But like the whole family would disappear in the middle of the night, like every six months, all new names. Hey, you're Sheila now. And, you know, as a kid, how bewildering that was because she didn't know what was going on. She just knew this was no way to live. And the case of Frankie Elkin, uh, before she disappeared, I did come up with the plot first. Reading about this, this situation of everyday people kind of going through these extraordinary efforts to find, solve cold cases. Um, and just the difference one person can make with no police background or special training was inspiring to me. And then it made me though ask the question, what kind of person really does this? What kind of person gives up their entire life to go from town to town, always being the outsider, never having any roots, to try to solve cases involving people she's never met? And that kind of question of who would do this then brought me to Frankie Elgin. You, you've started to answer this question now by asking those questions then, but when you are, in, in times when you're kind of struggling to tap into that character's voice, when it's perhaps a little bit harder, what do you do to, to get to know them better? I'm lucky in that regard. I work really hard on the plotting, and that's why I do so much research, so the research helps inspire me. Again, just to sound like the crazy lady for the day, voices in my head are pretty darn good. <laughs> they dial themselves in just fine. <laughs> I have author friends who do like character worksheets and get to know them and astrological signs and favorite flavors of ice cream. And I don't know. The characters are the part that are organic to me. They feel like my family and friends and I write their stories accordingly. I think anything below, you know, with a, an investigation is you want to go to the people who would handle the investigation. And for me, like in this book, it was the Boston police. It's often cold calling. I had contacts in the Boston police, but they had retired. Um, so I had to kind of start over for this one and end up talking to the retired superintendent of the Boston police. And one of the things I have found, if you're going to be interviewing with law enforcement at all, is just to put them at ease. I'm a fiction writer. It's a fictional book because all police are really concerned about is you're trying to weasel out information on an active case, something that has not been adjudicated, that you want to make the police look bad. So the other thing is to say, you know, one of the main characters will be a detective. And my goal, and I'm honest about this, I think you need to be honest when you're approaching people for help, is I want the police to look good. 
I mean, my job is to find out every logical, rational thing you would do. And then I'm going to bring you a fictional crime. And then I need you to help me understand why none of those logical steps worked. But, you know, I want it to be the police were smart. It just didn't solve the problem in this case. <laughs> um, we've, we've said a few times how you've written many books. I mean, this is a, a slight change in that it's... Um, you know, it's not in a series for the first time in quite a while. But how much do you think about, I guess, the uh, the tricks and the tropes of working in a genre? How much are you, are you, are you thinking about what the reader expects from a Lisa Gardner book? Well, I do think about it. Um, I, I mean, like, actually, I just mentioned one of them. I, I think one of the contracts you have with the reader and one of the expectations is that the book is smart. Um, people read my books because they want a smart thriller. And, you know, my very first editor was very hard on this rule. A good thriller, the protagonists do the right things. Um, the, The antagonist, the villain, may be a step ahead, and that's the cat and mouse. But no one likes reading, well you know, the killer got away because they were stupid or there's this obvious clue that was missed and, oh, 200 pages later, someone bothered to pay attention. I mean, that's just not satisfying suspense. So you want it to be smart. Um, I think people read me because they want characters who feel real to them. And that's the part for me that's just organic. It's how I write. Frankie Elkin, to me, is incredibly human. She's not super powered at all. She's a recovering alcoholic. She's kind of a dry drunk. She's replaced one addiction of drinking with this new compulsion to find missing people. And she's raw. She has to attend her AA meeting. She has doubts. She doesn't know what she's doing. She's just like the rest of us. She's getting up each day and putting one foot in front of the other. And then I think um, it's just that you want to like the people and you want a lot of plot twists along the way. But other than that, there's a lot you can do within, you know, those givens. And I think the point each time is to have a book that feels fresh and unique to itself. And with that, how much are you thinking about the words on the page? Um, Thrillers are known for being written in a certain style. Do you concern yourself with finding the right word to come next? Oh, I hate the words on the page. <laughs> so Stephen King has a great quote that I think about a lot. I think it's from On Writing, where he's like, there's the kind of two kinds of novelists. There are those who are writers, and those are kind of really the words on the page. And they're, they're those who are storytellers. I am the storytelling part. I feel like intimidated and I'm at my worst when I'm trying to part, put together like the perfect sentence. And to a certain extent, I don't want my reader to notice the sentence. I'm writing very pedantic, um, a lot of real world dialogue that's, you know, fragmented sentences. It's meant to sound how people really are. I kind of don't want you to notice the words. I want you to be so caught up in the story and, oh my God, what's going to happen next? But having said that, that's a harder style to achieve than I would like most days. And I've often been hiking the mountains, muttering under my breath that I hate the word the. It happens. We mentioned that this is your, um, before she disappeared, is your first standalone novel uh, in more than 20 years. Why come back to it, Lisa? Why concern yourself with series for so long and now and, and now come back to just doing a one-off? Well, see, and this is where it's really fun. When you start talking about formula and expectations, um, I've never had any to a certain extent. I um, mean, I never meant to write series. Dee Dee Warren, who's become my longest series author, 
she started as, I just needed a Boston cop for this one scene where I was writing a book where I needed Boston jurisdiction, that's all. Um, it was never meant to be anything. I don't plan ahead. I'm not one of those people that sits around and talks about what's better to write a series or write standalones, what will sell better. I don't know. I wrote Dee Dee Warren and people liked her and I liked her, so I wrote another and then I wrote another. And then there was this vigilante Flora Dane I introduced and everyone liked her too, including me. So then she and Dee Dee became <laughs> another and another. But then I read this idea this this woman lisa yellowbird chase and what she's doing and by definition your main character cannot be a cop you're talking about just an everyday person getting involved in these cases and trying to make a difference and i just had to write it and i'm very lucky with dutton and a great editorial team that were like okay then write it we've been talking about writing routines for best part of half an hour now and you're clearly someone that uh, has thought about the best way of you know, planning your day, the best time that you are creative. Thinking forward, are there any changes that ideally you would like to make with the way you work? Oh, I'm still waiting to have it happen naturally. It's the funniest thing. I've 30-something books now, and each one feels like, you know, my, I'm trying to pull my brains out of my eyeballs. It's like, really? I thought by now this would go away. <laughs> I think you have to come to accept that, you know, it is an artistic process. In many ways, you are squeezing blood from a stone. No book is meant to be easy. Each should be challenging in its own right. And there are days you're going to beat your head against the blank computer screen and wonder why you do this to yourself. And then there's days where exactly the way you have it in your mind, it like flows from the keyboard to the page and you're almost just giddy. It's so exciting. And those are the days you live for. And eventually you are going to get to the other side and you can have a book. And I will tell you, with the manufacturing and shipping delays, I just like four days ago, finally got to receive my copy of Before She Disappeared. And it is just, you never get tired of seeing the book and holding it in your hands and realizing, oh my God, this, all, this whole thing really did happen. I survived another one. <laughs> And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Lisa Gardner for coming on the show. You can get a copy of that brand new book, her first standalone in 20 years before she disappeared. Find the link in the episode notes where you're listening and over at writersroutine.com too. Now, font chat will be happening this week over on Patreon. Have a think. What fonts do you like? What do you love? Do you like mixing it up? Are you very a very hardcore traditionalist? Maybe. And keep this between us. Maybe you even like Comic Sans. Get that off your chest. We'll have a big font chat over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine through the week. Now, next week, we're chatting to Bethany Clift about uh, the outstanding last one at the party. And this is a book that has come around at the perfect time. I mean, honestly, she couldn't have planned it better. You can hear all about it next week on Writers Routine with Bethany Clift. I'll see you then. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 